Hello, everybody. Welcome to the State of Mind podcast, where we create conversations about mental health that change lives by bringing you the stories underneath the slogans. My name is Mike Stroh, and on this week's episode, we have Dr. Ellen Choi, who is an assistant professor at Ryerson University in the Ted Rogers School of Management. She teaches organizational behavior, which includes topics like decision-making, team effectiveness, leadership, and motivation. She is an organizational social psychologist who trained at the London School of Economics and completed her doctoral degree at the Ivy School of Business. In particular, she studies the efficacy of mindfulness training on performance, under pressure, resilience, and errors. Ellen has taught and researched mindfulness with corporate executives, lawyers, MBA students, elementary school students, police recruits, and in healthcare settings. In this episode, we talk about how mindfulness can impact people's relationships in the workplace, how it impacts the way we relate to ourselves, our mental health, and what it means to be alive. We get a little, a little nerdy at some points around the research into mindfulness and concepts of self, what it means to be a human, how we perceive ourselves in reality. And it was a lot of fun. It was sh- shorter than normal, but I hope you find some interesting things about it. And as always, please like, comment, share. Get in touch with me about future topics you'd like to hear or any other things you want to reach out and say. All right. Without further ado, I bring you Dr. Ellen Choi. Hi, Ellen. Um, Can you please introduce yourself to everybody listening? All righty. Hello, everybody listening. My name is Ellen Choi. I research mindfulness and mindfulness related things like self-compassion, resilience, different types of well-being. And I look at how those kinds of constructs influence work experiences. So whether it's, you know, workplace mental health or even errors, creativity. Right now we're looking at safety, compliance. So different applications of mindfulness in different kinds of work settings. Cool. Thank you. And, and you currently are teaching at Ryerson as an organizational <laughs> psychologist. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. So many syllables. Um, yes. Yeah. So I... I teach a course on organizational behavior. So how Mm. people, groups, organizations think, feel, and behave at work. And I guess as a side hustle, I also do a bit of mindfulness consulting where I'm teaching these types of practices and the benefits of practices like these uh, to, you know, health, healthcare practitioners, executives, different types of corporations, schools, etc. Yeah. Okay. So uh, one thing that I've been really learning a lot about lately 
I guess, more in depth. And I'm curious how this is seen from a research perspective is on mindfulness. So there's different mindfulness practices, you could say, or meditation practices. So when researchers are doing studies and they use the word mindfulness, is that defined specifically? And is it under the, and I don't know if this matters, but under the sort of more dualistic kind of understanding of mindfulness, which would probably be the, um, what what's the really, uh, Vipassana, which is sort of quite popular in this part of the world, or is it kind of more on the Zen or Mahamudra, like that more non-dual spectrum? You know, I, at the risk of going too deep into a very nerdy rabbit hole, there is a an extensive academic debate around how to define it, how difficult it is to define. There are as many papers on the effects of mindfulness as there are on trying to define it. So very broadly, I would say, call it awareness that has this quality that's oriented towards the present and non-judgmental, open, curious, et cetera. And that you are continually bringing that awareness and that quality of awareness over and over back to present moment experience. So thoughts, feelings, you know, emotions or energy and motion in your body, your physiological experience, et cetera. And then you had mentioned earlier, you know, there's lots of different types of mindfulness and practices and that's that's true. And I think researchers are getting better at discerning the effects of certain types of practices. So whether it's Vipassana meditation, where you're really looking at a focused awareness practice, or whether it's a compassion practice or some sort of meta where you're extending kindness to others, including yourself. And these all have their own sort of developing streams of research that have different types of outcomes. Um, we actually just, we're looking at, does mindfulness help you catch phishing emails better? Like, is there a cybersecurity advantage to mindfulness? And we looked at different types of practices. So like a breath awareness practice, and these are all in novice practitioners. It's not like these are done on undergraduate students. Uh, about 800 of them, most of which have never really done these practices or um, are new to them anyways. And it's just all over the place. So we comp compared a breath practice to gratitude. So sort of the idea of cultivating this sense of appreciation and gratitude in your own self. And sometimes breath does much worse and really brings awareness to the things that we are carrying around that are uncomfortable. And then it just amplifies the negative affect that we feel, which then curtails how people perform on these sort of ability to detect the quality of these emails. And sometimes gratitude works really well and does the opposite. So what is my point? That the different types of practices, they, they do really matter. They have different outcomes, different processes. Yeah. Cool. Um, thank you. That is helpful in terms of, uh, well, one, the definition of mindfulness and then seeing the different 
strands and how they affect different things since since this is uh, this is um so fun for me to get to ask somebody who's knowledgeable about this stuff um i've seen you reference the uh, daniel kahneman's work like the thinking fast thinking slow that stuff mm -hmm. um that book is so dense and long i'm curious and i'm not through it yet but i've been listening to it and i'm curious so when you say you know we um there was 800 participants in this recent thing you're you're talking about and i hear like how and maybe this is kind of off track, but he talks about sort of the bias of sample size and the, the blindness of researchers in their approach to getting accurate descriptions of experience or whatever. And I'm just curious uh, how that plays into mindfulness research and stuff like that, or does it or, or not? Do you know, and do you know what I'm talking about? I, I mean, Sample size, this is probably way nerdier than you were No, I love expecting. it. I love it. I love so, it. I like um, it. but sample size matters because it, one, it helps confirm the reliability of a particular result. So if, you know, just because for me, when I meditate, I feel awesome, doesn't mean that it will do the same in other people, in other contexts. And to just do studies on one person, one person, that's not that generalizable. So having a larger sample helps with that. Uh, sometimes when you have a really large sample or many, many, many data points, you're actually increasing the sort of power of your statistical analysis so that any effect, however small, becomes now significant and detectable. And that's also not awesome. Um, if that makes sense. So if it's really just a tiny effect size, and again, I'm, I'm speaking really generally because depending on the context and the research question, these things will all matter a lot. Um, but if I were looking at a study of, you know, 2000 people, 400,000 data points, then I would detect even really, really small changes and those would be significant. Whereas, um, Right now we're doing a pilot study on a different, one particular type of wellness training. And we see that it it's almost significant in helping with loneliness, except that there's, there's really only 20 people in one group and 26 in the other group. Now, if I had 200 people in that group and 300 people in the other, I am quite certain the result would be significant, but there's just not enough power in my sample size to to tell. So I think that's how it's relevant. Um, I mean, you started with talking about Kahneman and sort of thinking fast, thinking slow, which is this general idea that we have two systems that help us think through the different decisions we encounter. So if, if one system is very abstract and emotional, and the other one is very rational, logical, analytical, I I think where mindfulness fits into that world would be in helping, well, I'll say this, you know, we kind of presume that we're these really logical, rational beings and in control of how we feel and think about something. But 
Kahneman would say that our emotional brain, so type one, can very easily hijack type two or this more higher order thinking. And so mindfulness is cool because it's showing that it's helping regulate system, system one's reactions in a, in a more optimal manner so that we can actually switch over to type two. So, you know, the classic example is you, um, you get a scary email or a scary text or somebody posts something nasty and then you have this very visceral immediate spiraling of social anxiety or whatever. And we want to be able to get ourselves out of that, to have the awareness to say, hey, you know what? Small thing versus big thing. And that is part of the sort of power, the mechanisms of mindfulness and allowing us to do that a little bit more effectively when we need to. Okay, so how that's a great, I guess, doorway into the stuff that you teach and also study. How, how can you give me a specific example in a workplace or in a team environment where these practices and skills make a big difference or can make a big difference? Sure. I think a nice way to think about the benefits of these practices is by putting them into, let's call it three buckets. So one is like stress, stress management, well-being. Mindfulness is good for that. Two, cognitive performance benefits. So things like improvements to working memory capacity, um, offsetting age-related cognitive decline, but it appears that it can help with cognitive function, focus, attention, attentional control. So like where, you know how sometimes you have to get something done, but you are just distracted. It helps with that because you can actually place your attention in an area that you want to, and then it then you're able to hold your attention there for an extended period of time, which again, like in the interest of keeping it real, we know that everyone has a hard time with. The final one is in like interpersonal benefits. So how people speak to each other, their openness to listening, defensive behaviors, regulating those behaviors. Excuse me. Bless you. Uh, Cough. So... Regu yeah, regulating defensive behaviors, you were saying? Yeah, it's just so the quality of the interpersonal reaction um, stands to benefit, like more pro-social behavior of greater willingness to help. Um, you know, one of my favorite studies is, looks at compassion and they used, I think it was headspace versus luminosity. Do you remember? luminosity oh, yeah. sort of the mind game website <laughs> so, and yeah. they put one group in luminosity one group in headspace which is a 10 day 10 minute a day mindfulness training and then they they put people in a waiting room with not enough chairs and then they had someone with crutches enter and then they just see does the person get up and offer their chair to the person on crutches and then more people in the headspace condition got up and offered 
their chair, which is that compassion is that situational awareness. I don't know, but cool study. Yeah, that does sound cool. It's amazing how the studies are constructed and, and um, okay. Oh, I got, there was something that keeps coming back into my head that I wanted to ask you. Oh, it's kind of gone. Um, oh, well, one thing that just came up, but this isn't what I'm trying to remember is I don't often see or hear if we talk about if in the context of the yin and yang or the masculine, feminine slash like soft versus more rigid, maybe. Um, I'm curious. I don't know. Anyway, those are some of the frames that are used. The benefits of practicing mindfulness in terms of people's ability to be assertive or be more um, like to stick up for certain things, right? Or to not allow certain behavior to continue. So I'm curious maybe what your thoughts are on that, I think. And so yeah. I don't mean people who get like super angry and start yelling and screaming, but that assertive kind of forcefulness that can be a skill of mindfulness, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think this is important because sometimes when I go into corporate settings, which is a very yang heavy, go, 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 achieve, 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 assert, assert, assert kind of world. And you talk about things like acceptance and allowing and letting go or non-striving, you know, every <laughs> overachievers most detested attitude. Um, I get some real pushback. And the thing is, mindfulness practiced well isn't about a doormat effect. It's not just accept all the shit that life throws at you and don't get up and change anything. And I think that there's this very popular Mick mindfulness phrase that is going around and, you know, the article it's a phrase that's been used. I think the first articles are in the early, like 2011, 2012. And then there was a book that was published just last year or the year before that. And then so the, the phrase really rose again because there's been a, a very hardcore rising surge of interest in, in mindfulness. And the Mick mindfulness critique kind of gets at this. Like it's just all about like self-soothing and doing whatever I need to do to feel better myself, but then I may not actually be asserting my truest needs or contributing to the community or other issues I believe in because I'm more apt to just soothe self, decrease stress, which probably means that I'm not engaging in uh, issues or political events that are meaningful and require some sort of conflict that is inevitably going to cause some stress. And People who push back on that, uh, actually a group um, of authors and I, we are trying to get an article published that looks a little bit more carefully at that because there's this idea of an engaged mindful process where you are in fact, there's discernment, there's wise reasoning that needs to occur 
where you're looking at a set of values. And I feel like mindfulness people in the present day literature really don't like talking about values and ethics too much because it's, you know, particularly in management journals, less appealing to talk about, but it's important. You know, I have a set of values. I use my attention to make sense of it. And um, if you look to the Buddhist traditions, like this idea of samasati, where I really do actually care about right mindfulness and where I'm placing my attention based on these values, that I think encompasses engagement and reasoning in a way that's saying I'm not, there is no doormat effect you know, the what I allow and accept versus what I stand up against is guided by a very intentional framework that um, maybe it's it comes from someone else that you then subscribe to, or maybe it's something that you've created on your own. For me, it doesn't matter, but it's about knowing, hey, this is what's important to me. And now based on that, I'm gonna act with that guiding my thoughts and actions and feelings. And that's like the sieve that helps you decide what you hold onto and what you let go of. And I mean, you can, mindfulness for all of its definitions, you can think of it very simply as like, what is most important right now? And based on that, what do I need to think and feel? What do I need to let go of? So if you're, you know, I mean, it's a pandemic, so you're probably not in Ikea, but if you're in Ikea and it's just like a thousand people around you and there's, you keep winding yourself back into the office chairs when you're just trying to get to the meatballs, like whatever's happening and you're starting to lose your mind, then you just have to remember like, who am I with and what is important? And then does this actually matter? And, you know, that's helpful whether you're at work or whether you're in a grocery store. Um, we have wandered far from your original question. No, no, actually, but you you totally helped rem remind me of what I wanted to ask you before. <laughs> so that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, and I'm curious in the mindfulness research, and I want to get back to the values and ethics thing, because I think that's huge too. Uh, the sense of I, me, my, the self, and sort of this, that seems to be glaringly absent from the McMindfulness world, or even from a lot of the pop mindfulness kind of discussions, right? It's sort of this so I think to me, the most soothing thing is when I can remind myself that I'm, that even the concept of me is an illusion in some sense, or is another form that arises in my awareness. And that when I can remember that, oh, it's so powerful. But that, like the idea of being in an Ikea or being in line at a grocery store and the impatience starts to build because we have such a strong sense of this is happening to me why is this happening to me what is that person doing to me etc um so i'm curious if that enters the discussion in the research side of mindfulness at all the sort of idea of the illusory self and yeah, yeah. and and it totally does so 
I am a management researcher. I look at mindfulness and workplace outcomes and management researchers aren't that into the illusory self, like colored what you will. Yes. But there are contemplative and psych journals that do go much deeper into this. One of the most often cited and used scales to measure mindfulness comes from, um, their names are Brown and Ryan. And they have a paper that talks about mindfulness and quieting the ego, which is a beautiful paper that talks about just just this. And it's there, uh, it's in a psych journal. So really wide relevant audience, not quite a management journal. And, you know, I'm saying that, but then there's also like identity researchers that would look at mindfulness this way. And I'm just, I'm not an identity mm. researcher, so I don't come across it, but there's definitely people acknowledging that this idea of um, self or no self is important. Uh, even when you look uh, at, um, yep. Oh, sorry. I, I want to not forget to ask you about identity research. That sounds amazing. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, like I remember in an earlier draft of a paper, we were writing about mindfulness, authenticity, and the conceptualized self and how mm -hmm. um, we have this, this narrative that we've bought into of this is who I am. And that's our conceptualized self. And we know that the default mode of our brain operates in this narrative, this narrative mode that's just over and over making a story about who we are. And uh, one, like neurologically, mindfulness practices break the narrative mode and put us into a different mode of self-processing where we're just aware of our sensory experience, which is cool. And also in this research that we were looking at, it we're seeing that mindfulness enables authenticity in a way that allows people to see who they are in any given moment, just as they are, instead of clinging to our conceptualizations of self. And this is why people are, can be less defensive. Um, mm. So anyways, I, I think it's, it's definitely part of the conversation. It's not when you just look at a definition of present moment, non-judgmental awareness, you know, it's, it's obviously not there because what's absent from that definition is like, whose awareness, awareness of what. And mm. I think therefore I am kind of Descartian logic where, who's the I and you know I so yeah, I yeah. get that yeah. and I appreciate it um I was reading yesterday about near-death experiences this is again a non sequitur but I'm just going to keep going where uh, like basically one of the most common experiences across across these reports is that people feel a disillusion of ego, right? It's just a, a general connectedness and sense of joy that we are all one. And I mean, what what great ancient wisdom doesn't say that across all different disciplines? Uh, so I am. I I don't think it's as salient in the literature that that gets featured because it's a little bit more philosophical and it feels like 
when mindfulness is mentioned right now, it's really just talking about, does it reduce stress? Does it help relieve pain? Does it increase focus? Does it help prevent like DNA telomeric deterioration? Like it's very objective and results oriented in a way that like people value right now. Um, but again, I, I, I think it would be remiss to say that that point of, of ego or lack thereof is, is missing because it's, it's there. It's just not what I think the media is like seizing upon. Yeah, cool. That's, I think it would be quite a helpful thing for <laughs> contemporary society to be uh, introduced to considering all the madness going on. Um, do you think that, I, 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 how do you, I guess, play with that? sense of self where do you find yourself because you said something about identity research right so that's another huge thing that is here's one hypothesis is our obsession with identity these days actually contributes to our poor mental health in a in a in a catastrophic way um so there's that piece and then there's the other piece of um the lack of ethics or morals, or I think you said one other word, I can't remember. Um, so when we look at young people, who's, according to all the research, you know, Gen Z, after 96, this generation of young people are facing all kinds of mental health problems that are much worse than other generations. And they're the ones who've been fed this sort of identity menu. Um, and then also, what else did I say? Oh, the lack of morals and ethics and sort of wisdom. Um, so that would be my hypothesis would be the lack of wisdom and ethics being taught to young people is the biggest factor influencing their mental health along with the obsession with identity. So I'm just curious how that, how do you think about that? And maybe personally, how do you notice your attachment to identity in different ways and like is that <laughs> these are i mean yeah. giant questions yeah when i'm gonna not touch identity for a minute mm -hmm. because it's its own mountain let me yeah. start with character and ethics because uh one of my favorite leadership models is a leadership character model, and it's Genesis oriented in the fact of like the Enron scandal, actually. So um, these this idea that leaders are making decisions that lack character. And the conclusion of these researchers was basically at no point in our like formal education system are people being taught character. And particularly in business schools, this is problematic. So their prescription was that, hey, we need to really start thinking more deeply about who are we? 
I don't know, raising, if you will, when we're teaching. Mm. And their, their model has like 10 different facets. And it says like, hey, if you, you need drive, but you also need temperance. And I mean, we have drive all day long and we are just starting to appreciate um, these ideas of like patience and humility and they're important and they, they work together in balance and that's the point. Um, so yes, I think character is missing. I think it's incredibly important uh, as a parent it's in my the back of my head all the time and I'm trying to build it in them as often as I can. Uh, okay, then you said identity. And again, identity, especially in the age of everything going on right now, um, whether it's Me Too or Black Lives Matter, there is a lot to say here. And I'm... Um, I'm going to stick for a moment in my experience of ego as someone that's, um, it's, I would never actually call myself a mindfulness expert, but it's often how I'm introduced and then it makes me so uncomfortable <laughs> because I practice mindfulness, but I am, you know, and, and I study it, but I study it because I so desperately need it and I would be way more batshit crazy without it. So uh, sometimes I notice a lot of feelings like that in this sort of like dilettantish experience where I have so much respect for the practice and what it can do and what it's done for me. Um, and that it's from that place that I tried to share it. And I think most people actually that I encounter in the mindfulness world, like once you get a taste of the special sauce and you see how much it helps, you just want to share it. And I have also encountered a number of people who I think have become a little bit self-important or their sense of worth is really inflated in teaching mindfulness. And, and I think that that's too bad because we are just all human. You know, if we lose sight of that, then the lessons themselves become, I don't know, plastic. Then now we are in McMindfulness territory. There's a book called Teaching Mindfulness. And the very first line of the first chapter is like, who are you to think you're going to be a mindfulness teacher? And I think about that every time I go in and teach because frankly, <laughs> aren't we all just doing the best we can yeah yeah no i love that first sentence wait so wait can you just describe because I've, I've never really heard of um identity research before so like what does that even mean like oh, what, what identity, do they study yeah uh identity research talks about who you think the self is it's just uh and, and it's a really broad area of research itself. So it, if you were, if you, just anything that you literally identify with. So if you consider yourself, um, it could be race as an identifier, like that's the mm -hmm. quality mm -hmm. that you're going to attach to. And then you would have a whole body of literature just on 
identity and race. It could yeah. be gender, so it could be demographics, but it might not. Yeah. It could be something else. Um, like just religion the fact that, or, or nationality sure, or sure. whatever, like, yeah, profession Athlet, or Athleticism, whatever. yeah, right. professional athletes, exactly. But we, we are, we tend to be really, really, really attached to who we think we are. And then this has implications. And I agree, definitely for well-being, definitely for quality of life and uh, when you look at like suicide stats for students and in different countries uh, like Korea, I'm Korean, so those always stuck out to me, but the high school suicide rates are astronomical because if you don't get into the right school, there's just not a lot of opportunity for you. And so then people kill themselves and that's that has identity implications, right? Because who you are is so tied to uh, external mm. metrics of success. And that seems a, like a limited view of quality of life, right? Yeah. Maybe that's just privilege talking, I don't know. No, no, I mean, maybe, but I think it's pretty, I don't think that one is gray you know if people are killing themselves because of not things getting of that the right nature, grades yeah yeah it's pretty scary um hmm. yeah and just on yeah. this note because i don't want the yeah. word suicide to be hanging over our heads without some sort of like actionable way forward but i just uh especially when i speak to younger people i I try to emphasize the importance of an internal, like an internal base of self-worth. And in psych, they would call this like optimal or non-contingent self-esteem. So that who you are, your self-worth originates from the extent to which you value and appreciate yourself, which is a self-compassion practice, right? And when you when you look at some of the like implications of social media on on cyberbullying and again teenage suicide etc i think this is this is such an important message because it's it's simple not easy but all within our own um, everyone has access to self compassion if we make the space for it yeah and it the self-reinforcing problem, I think, that young people are being, like, squished through is that the sort of environments they are growing up in, so in the schools, um, in many youth-based, I guess you could say in, in most of the social service sort of environments outside of the business world, if you could contrast them like that, is that they, again, are being encouraged to value identity, value external referencing, value a sense of self that's not solid or from within mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. way and, mm -hmm. and so they're they're trapped in in a lot of ways and it's so 
I don't know. You know, we don't in 10 minutes. I, I also am, am sort of resisting going down certain pathways. But to your point around suicide and this self-reference and internal reference, the, the idea of what do they call it? Internal locus of control. Um, and also around suicide and suffering in general. Um, I spoke to someone, um, Ian Daw, who's a chief psychiatrist of uh, hospitals, bunch of the Trillium Health Network. Um, and he promotes, he's part of this Project Zero, which is trying to reduce suicide to zero in Mississauga mm -hmm. first and then expanding it. Um, there's also a somewhat of a misconception that talking about difficult things makes things worse, which is so <laughs> backwards, you know? But so they, their protocol is to actually, instead of treating the person for depression or anxiety or whatever other kind of um, symptoms they're experiencing, experiencing is that you ask them specifically about the suicidal thoughts or the suicidal ideation. So you don't avoid it in any way whatsoever. You go specifically to it. And if you focus on that, then people's outcomes are so much better because hmm. they get relief or they get it's almost the validation in some sense, or the fear of talking about it is reduced. Yeah. There's a bit so of like you would a just side say tangent, like, but yeah. Tell me about your thoughts of suicide. Do you yeah, think or, about ending your life? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Do you have a plan? Are you going to kill yourself or, or mm. do you want to kill yourself? Those kind of things. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I'm not too familiar with it all, but they're trying to bring that into schools and into all kinds of youth domains. But when you confront the youth domain gatekeepers, they're all so caught up in this, let's just pretend everybody's okay and everybody deserves this and everybody deserves that and nobody should suffer. And it's just so unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where the mindfulness again can be so helpful there because if the gatekeepers aren't aware of their own blinders, then, you know. Yeah, gates, I mean, this yeah, for me is yeah. part of the stigma issue where we, so long as we make asking questions like this mm, incredibly mm. sensitive and inappropriate and highly confidential and problematic in an ethics review, I get so much, it's just incredibly difficult to get ethics to approve some of the surveys I use, which ask about people's mental health, because, and I mean, I get it, it's private information. And yet, every time we approach such conversations or the creation or the intention to create dialogue around these experiences, which are so common, and when we put all these gates around them, it just reinforces the fact that this is like private and not okay and something we should be ashamed about and don't tell anyone and don't let anyone know that you're, you know, it just, it's a, given how common it appears to be, it seems hard, it's hard for me to understand. But again, we are people that are immersed in this world. So it's not, yeah, I can appreciate yeah. that for many other people that would be much more vulnerable to disclose. So um, I get that. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to ask me some personal questions and I'm noticing that we're coming to the end of our yeah. time. And I just didn't want to 
to yeah, no, okay. give myself a chance to get off easy here. <laughs> okay. So I did have this thought earlier. How may, so yeah, I'll let you, I asked you a question earlier. Maybe you can elaborate on how your mindfulness practice helped guide you through that process. And maybe you can share if you're open to it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so earlier, Mike Stroh mm -hmm. asked me the very lovely and awkward question of what was it like to call off an engagement? And this is a fun thing to think about. So I have always had a bit of an informal practice and I never consistently meditated and the breakup and my formal meditation practice coincide really, really, really closely together. And I just think it made all the difference in the world. One, that relationship was doomed to start with. And had I listened to my intuition or honored the inner voice, I think there would have been a, a lot of deposits saved but I didn't. And right after, right after we broke up, I, I did a transcendental meditation course. It actually was right before we officially broke up. Um, and I just, all of the rumination that ends up amplifying suffering I just cannot tell you how little of that I had. It almost makes me sound like cold and extremely compartmentalized, which I think I am actually a good com compartmentalizer. Uh, but I just, I, I could really allow myself to feel free to stop caring so much about what other people thought and to connect to just that like inner joy that is within us all the time. And it's so easy to get disconnected from that. But I was practicing twice a day. Every time I walked, I was just feeling the sun on my face. You know, it just was a, a really beautiful, simple time. So it doesn't actually even feel awkward. It's just like a very practical tool that eliminated the mental noise that would otherwise have been so easy to drag me down. Mm. And, you know, there's been times in COVID that have been really difficult and exhausting and endless to endure day after day with really no sight and end. And I read this great article um, by Alex Hutchinson, who is an endurance researcher, and it was published in the Globe. And basically, it extrapolates like lessons from endurance athletes to our experience in COVID. And the takeaway is like, stop, stop anticipating the finish line. The moment that you could just let go of the fact that, like, when is this going to be over? When's the vaccine coming? Um, so much of our angst is actually just in that anticipation and like need to cling to control. And, and that's helpful. What is my point? My point is that like these practices, 
even just the willingness to embrace some of the attitudes, they're just so enormously helpful. As, as a person that studies it, I find mindfulness incredibly complicated and messy to study because to capture it accurately with the tools that we have, which are so blunt, is painstakingly horrific. Like just the years and hours I put into trying to show that mindfulness is increasing and most times I measure it, it actually decreases because everyone thinks they're aware and then you practice a bit and you realize, holy shit, I am really not aware. And so mindfulness goes down. But if you actually practice it, and I see this in the interviews all the time because the interviews show it, but the surveys often don't. Um, it's just such a beautiful practice. Yeah. So you could say mindfulness helps just to conclude or to, I can't, anyway, concise what you said. Mindfulness can help potentially help us listen to our intuition more. It might help us reduce our ruminating and all the madness that goes on up there. Or maybe not even reduce, but reduce the impact that the madness has on us. Um, and maybe both. And so that we can make healthier decisions that ideally lead to more joy or more more contentment and pursuit of yeah, for sure. And again, we talked want, about yeah. sample size at the beginning of this, like I am just an N of one. But what you've just paraphrased there, this idea that mindfulness practices decrease rumination, that's been shown repeatedly in a number of studies. The idea that mindfulness and intuition are linked also has been hypothesized and measured. Mindfulness has these links to interoception. So like the fact that your heart beats faster when you start to freak out or just all the tiny spidey senses that your body mm -hmm. offers you. And mindfulness has these relationships to interoception, which is also linked to better decision-making and um, an ability to sort of adapt to intuitive instincts more quickly and this idea of like reappraising a situation. So like something terrible happens and then you make sense of the event in a way that offers it some more meaning or in, in a bit more of a positive light. And again, that's been theorized and shown over and over. So your, your paraphrasing was really empirically accurate. <laughs> okay, thanks. That was the word, paraphrase, thank you. Okay, I know you gotta go. Um, I'm going to bug you again in a few months to do this again, maybe at the yeah. end of the semester. Yeah, and my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank okay. you for the time. Yeah. Thank you, listeners, yeah. for listening to this. Yeah. It feels like a total sure. indulgent rant, doesn't it? It was so good. <laughs> I loved every second of it. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And for everyone who doesn't know, Ellen has two little wee kids at home to add to all the COVID madness. So thank you so much for, for doing this and taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good okay. luck. Have a nice day. Happy New Year. Thanks. Bye. 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 Take care.